you guys uh, didn't know, my name is Rob Crespo. I'm here to, to deliver the message today, and we're, we're going through a, a sermon series through the book of Colossians, uh, talking about Paul's letter to the church at Coloss. And um, just in case I switch up the words, I always heard it Colossae. Um, so if I say Colossae, it means the same thing. It's not a different name, different place. Um, it just depends on how you, uh, how you uh, heard it said and how you determined to say it. So uh, I don't know what the exact wording is, so please have grace with me on that. But um, <clears throat> today, we're here to talk about, I think, one of the most important um, reasons why Paul wrote this letter. Um, there was a, a lot of things going on in that, in that time frame in, in history, and Paul chose to write his letter for a very specific purpose, a very specific reason. So before we get into that, let's go ahead and read what Paul wrote, and then we'll go ahead and talk about that. We're in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And if you'll stand with me, let's stand as we read the word of God, please. <clears throat> Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, or excuse me, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in your faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which he has proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. Thank you. You see, we remember that when Paul was writing this, he was writing to a, a body of believers that he had never met. He had never talked to them in person. He had never been there. But he recognized that it was important that he write this letter to them because of the heresies that were being spoken. The heresies that were being spoken were specifically attacking the deity of Christ. You remember two weeks ago that we read the passage in 1 Colossians chapter 1 uh, where it said that, um, that he prayed for the people there that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, Paul recognized that if we don't understand who God is, who Christ is, then there's really no reason to even be here. There's no reason for us to come to church if we are not here for Christ, if we don't understand who God is and the purpose for which he came to this world. There's, we don't really have a hope if there is no Jesus Christ. If he didn't come down 
to this earth to die, not only to die, but to live and to give us an example of how to live. There's no purpose with us being here. So Paul understood that with an unquenchable passion, and that's why he wrote to the church in Colossus. That's why he put pen to paper. Even though he was in prison, he said, this is important for me to do. Paul took time to combat the, the lies that were plaguing the body of believers there. So during this, during this passage of Scripture, he reminds them of who Christ is, both physical and spiritual. And he does that by basically outlining three things to them. He outlines who God is in his relationship to the Father, who God is or who Christ is in relationship to the church, and then who Christ is in relationship to all creation. So we're going to go through those things today. Slide, please. So before we get into the specifics, there is a laundry list of things that Paul outlines that Christ is. So the next two slides, we're going to kind of go through this very quickly before we do a deep dive into um, a very specific thing that I think is very important for us today. So the first thing that Paul talks about here, uh, or one of the first things, is that he is the firstborn of all creation. So what is that firstborn of all creation? The word there for firstborn is prototokos. That's a Greek word, and what that means really is that first in position, or you could think of it as supreme. It's not talking about Christ being born as in a human sense, where he was, uh, he was not being born as if, ladies, when you have a baby. That's not what he's talking about here. Christ was not born like that um, in terms of eternity. What he's relating to here is more of a firstborn in the sense of a, a child being the firstborn and receiving the inheritance. If you guys remember the story of Jacob and Esau, you see Esau was the firstborn, right? And he was given a birthright, which meant that he had the inheritance. Everything that his father owned was going to be passed down to him. We're kind of familiar with that when we look throughout history, right? When we look throughout many of the uh, kingdoms and, uh, and different things, we see that the the reign from one king was passed down to the firstborn son and all of the possessions. Now, the secondborn son, kind of too bad. You got to kind of go find your own kingdom, right? But the firstborn son, he had that position of uh, importance, that position where he was going to be the one that was the next ruler. So that's what um, this idea of this firstborn um, is. It's a position of uh, supremacy. Um, now, if Paul was talking about first created, there's a separate word he would have used. You see, Paul was a very educated man. He went to school for a long time. He was in another book of the Bible, I forget which one, I think it's Galatians, where he talks about his laundry list of things that he should have a position of, uh, of respect. Paul outlines how much education he had and all the different uh, things, all the different uh, credentials he had. But Paul would have used the word prototiskos, which means first created. Um, but that is not the thing that Paul was talking about. He wasn't talking about Jesus as being the first thing that God created, and then through him, he created all things. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying here that Jesus is, was there with God in the beginning, and that through him, all things were created. Um, if we look at the next passage or next verse in chapters or uh, verse 16, 
we see that where he says that he is before all things, excuse me, all things were created through him and for him. You see, if all things were created through him, then he could not have done the creating himself if he was a created being. So because he was the creator, he cannot be the created. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, just want to make sure we clear that up because that's one of the heresies that was being taught then. And in fact, it's one of the heresies that still persists today in certain um, sects of people that call themselves Christians. So we want to make sure that we avoid that and speak the truth here. The next thing that we see is that he is before all things. When we're talking about before all things and the fact that he is the beginning, what we're seeing here is Paul is referencing a, an idea of time, but not only time, he's talking about authority as well. So when we look at Jesus being in the beginning, we're talking about Genesis 1 and John 1. So if you remember in Genesis 1, 3, what do we see there? We see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And then God spoke and God said, let there be light. Genesis 1, 3. Well, what do we see in John 1? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then later on, we see the word became flesh. And then he continues on to talk about how that word was Jesus Christ. So if in the beginning was the word, and the word spoke and said, let there be light. Now we're making a connection in between the spoken word of God and Jesus Christ. You see that? So Jesus was in there in the beginning, and this further supports the idea that Jesus is not a created being. He is the creator. Through the spoken word of God, all things were created. So it's important for us as we are interpreting these passages the fallacies that arise, arise in part because people are looking at a very small piece of Scripture and trying to interpret all of it in light of a small piece of Scripture. But we as Christians need to do the due diligence and make sure that we are looking at the small piece of Scripture and then taking the entirety of Scripture and interpreting the specific in light of the whole. Anything that's obscure, we need to interpret in light of what is clear. So that's important for us as we're reading the Bible is that we don't get caught up in these little things. Let's look at the whole word and then try to interpret it in light of that. So Paul is also talking about um, Jesus being before all things and in the beginning in light of authority. <clears throat> the word had the authority to create. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, he had all that authority before he came to this world. And then once he rose from the dead, we see again that not only did he have the authority uh, over life, but he also had the authority of death. And he was just here acknowledging the fact that he had authority over life and death. Both death and sin as well. Because he overcame everything as the atonement for the sin of the people. See, some, a way we can kind of understand what Paul means when he says before all things is the idea that if you ever go to a, a fancy banquet or things like that, who is introduced first at those banquets? It's generally the person that's the highest ranking or the highest authority. If 
Uh, if we had a lineup of people here and there was maybe the president and then Greg and then myself, then who would you think would be introduced first? Well, Greg, because he's the best looking, but no, really, uh, no. The president, the president would be the first person to be introduced, right? Because he has the highest position of authority. We, those in the military, like myself, we kind of understand that. The, first, the highest ranking person is the first person to be introduced. And that's the idea that Paul is developing here with before all things, both in time and authority. <clears throat> so it also says Christ is the head of the body, the church. The Greek word there is kept fail, K-E-P-H-A-L-E, kept fail. And what this word points to is not merely that Christ is the ruler of the church, but headship here means that he is the beginning or the principle in creation of the church, as well as the redemption of that church. You see, there was a church that was there in Christ's time, but it was very corrupt. It was being based on uh, very human aspects of what they thought they needed to do to, to glorify God. And Christ came in part to redeem the church. That's important. You see, Christ trained disciples. He invited men into covenant relationship with him. Next, uh, actually, no, we're going to wait on that slide. Um, Christ, uh, in fact, called Peter and said, Peter, I'm gonna re- Simon, I'm going to rename you to Peter Petros, meaning little rock, and he said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then Christ commissioned Peter and other disciples and sent them out as apostles. In Matthew 28, we see the commission he gave them. He said, go out into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. So if Christ was going to build his church on Peter, and then he told them to go make disciples, what that means is that Christ's plan in rebuilding his church or redeeming his church was not through making converts. It was through making disciples. That's what he had in mind when he said, go out and make disciples of all the nations. Because by making disciples, you will build a church that will then make disciples and make disciples and make disciples and continue on. That's the idea. So, next slide, please. So Christ is the firstborn from the dead. So what does he mean here when he says firstborn from the dead? It's kind of the same idea, but now we're starting to relate as we transition from Christ as uh, the head of the body, the church. We're transitioning into what Paul is talking about as Christ as he relates to the church. So firstborn from the dead, he's talking about the first in preeminence or first in position amongst those dead, those spiritually dead. That's what he's talking about. All those that are not regenerate, redeemed by Christ. So he is the first one to conquer death and thus be able to be to redeem those that are dead spiritually. So Dr. Thomas Constable in his commentary on this passage mentions the, um, the word icon um, as image. And we'll get into what that means, that icon, image, uh, when we look at who Christ is. But before we get to there, I just want to hit these last few points. The word preeminent, I had to look that up. It means surpassing all others. It's kind of a, a word we don't use very well, but um, it's a kind of a churchy word. Um, but it was used in earlier times to just mean surpassing all others. Um, we talked about how Christ is the glue that holds all things together. And then he also is the means by which God reconciles all things to himself. Not only did 
God reconciled the church to himself through Christ, but he was going to use Christ as the means to reconcile all things to himself. Next slide. So what does it mean for Christ to be the image? This is where we're going to spend the next few minutes of our time and where we're really going to dig down deep. As I said, Dr. Constable used the word icon as the word image. That's a Greek word for image. And it points to the illumination of something's inner core or essence. So it's looking on the inside and illuminating that which is inside. So what it's not talking about is a a frail or weak image, a weak replication. John Calvin addressed it like this. He said, when addressing the glory of Christ, Paul proclaims that Christ alone, that in Christ alone, God, who is otherwise invisible, is manifested to us. So next slide. We got a, a illustration here. So what is this? A mirror. Good. That's not a trick question. It's a mirror. All right. And when you look in a mirror, what do you see? You see yourself. You see a reflection of yourself. You see an image. Okay? You see a representation of yourself. Now, what do you really see when you look in a mirror? So when I look in the mirror, do I, do you, or when you look in the mirror, do you sometimes see maybe your inadequacies? Do you see your failures? You sometimes see that pimple that's grown right here, and you're like, I gotta get that one, right? You see your imperfections? You see, what you can see when you look into a mirror sometimes when you're looking at yourself is you see beyond what's on the surface. You see what's on the inside. And what becomes on the outside to you is really a reflection of what is on the inside of yourself. So you start to define who you are by what you see because of what you know is on the inside. Now, we can't do that with other people. If I go look at my wife, I don't necessarily see what's on the inside of her until I get to really know her. It's not like when she stands in front of a mirror and I'm looking, I can't see what's on the inside, but we can do that with ourselves because we know who we are. The other thing that's important that when you look at a mirror is you are not really seeing in a literal sense, you're not seeing yourself. You see, you are sitting here and what you are looking at in the mirror is not also you. It's not like there's two of you once you sit there, all right? It's not like the cartoons where you, the, the images start talking to each other. What's in the mirror is just a reflection. It's not something that's really real. It's just a reflection of who you are. <clears throat> Next slide, please. Now, what are these? Apples, are they real apples? Okay, the one on the, on the left, is that real? No. The one on the right? Actually, it's a trick question. Both of them are fake. <laughs> See, both of them are made of wood. If you look down in the bottom right-hand corner of that picture, you can kind of see the defect, and those are both carved uh, from wood and then painted and stained and done up so that they look like real apples. Now, you may not know that until you pick it up, take a bite, and then break your teeth off. That would probably not be a good day for you, but... These two are images. And unlike the mirror image that you would see if you were looking in a mirror, these are flawed images because they are not perfect. They were made, and they are not perfect. See, Paul is talking here about 
when he's talking about the image of the invisible God, he's not talking about these apples when he's talking about images. What he is talking about is more of a mirror. But even more than that, he's talking about the mirror in light of when you look at the mirror and you can see what's on the inside, the reflection and the illumination of what is on the inside. So when he's talking about Christ, he's saying that when you look at Christ, you are seeing the illumination of the essence of who God is. Just like when we look in the mirror, we can see what's below the surface. When we look at Christ, we can see what is invisible about God, his character, his nature, his attributes, and we can see that in human form, in the flesh, all right? See, if we were not in, our, in a fallen state, we may be able to look at God and not have to uh, picture it in a way through Christ. We'd be able to see God as he really is, but because of our fallen nature, we are not allowed to do that. So Christ came down in this world to provide us with that, to fill the areas where our fallen nature could not truly see God. So this is Christ. This is the essence. Next slide, please. So... <clears throat> When we look at Father, by faith, we begin to understand our identity. When we look at Christ as the image of the invisible God, we begin to understand who we are as believers. For anyone that's a believer here, you begin to understand that. <clears throat> so, you know, a couple weeks ago, I didn't have a picture of this for you guys, so I wanted to do a little bit better and provide you with a picture. This is a look at what covenant relationship really looks like. As Christ invites us into covenant relationship with him, we begin to understand our identity through our faith as we understand God. And then because of that, once we surrender to God, we are then able to act in obedience to him. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 said, God, God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Colossians then tells us that Christ is the image of God. And then in 1 Corinthians later on, we see that we're reminded that we too are the image and glory of God. See, when you surrender your life to Christ, as you start to look in the mirror, as you are going through the process of sanctification, that inner image that you see that is full of flaws and imperfections slowly, day by day, becomes more and more like Christ. So that image that you see now becomes you looking more at Christ in you than you in the sur under the surface. All right? Next slide. So what does... Um, okay, I think maybe I left out some pictures there. That's good. We'll continue on. <laughs> All right. So what else does it mean for uh, us to be, or for Christ to be the image of the invisible God? Well, God has dominion over all things, and when Christ speaks, when the word is spoken, it also has dominion. And we were made in the image of God, so at the same point, we have dominion over all that God has created us to have dominion. In Genesis 1, it talks about that we, God gave us the, the charge to go take dominion over all the earth, over all the fish, the plants, the birds, to take dominion over that. That's Genesis 1, 26 through 31. In Psalms 8, 5 through 8, we see another picture of that. David, through the inspiration of God, talks about, yet you have made 
him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, and it continues on. See, the cool thing about that is, is God did not, when he was done with creation and he said that everything was good, he not only saw that the individual created beings were good, whether it was the stars, not really beings, but, but things, whether it was the earth, the mountains, the people, the birds, the fish, the animals, whatever it was, God saw that the natural order which with he created them, the hierarchies, the structure of how they're supposed to relate, all of that he saw was good as well. So when he placed man in dominion over those things, he saw that that was good. That was a right way for things to occur. <clears throat> Next slide. So why did he see that? Why did God see that the natural order, the existence, the way he created things was good? It's because God is a God that is relational. He is living in relationship. He is, a, an, in his essence, relationship, a relational being. And he created us that way. We go back to Genesis 1 again. I keep referring back to this. When he created the earth, we see that there was Father, Son, and Spirit all there in creation in the first few verses. And then when he created man, he said, let us make man in our own image. So God in relationship created man in his image, in a relational image. And then when God created Eve, right before that, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. I need to create him in relationship so that his relationship with Eve will reflect in some essence, the relationship that I have in the Trinity. <clears throat> we see that God extends relationship not only to Adam and Eve, but throughout, throughout the Bible, throughout the history of uh, redemptive history, we see that God in uh, Genesis 6, he extends that to Noah. When all the world was corrupt, he was about to destroy everything that he had ever created, but then he saw Noah, and he saw Noah followed him, and so he entered into covenant with Noah and said, I'm going to redeem you, do what I tell you to do, build an ark, and you and your family will survive. In Genesis 15, we see the same thing with God's covenant with Abram. And we see at this point where God establishes a very new, uh, I won't say, it's, it's a new covenant, it really is, where it's not a covenant that is going to be for a short amount of time, but it's going to be a covenant with not only Abraham, uh, who he Abram, who he later renamed to be Abraham, but through his, all, his uh, posterity, all of his children from that point on. And even though God's people would continually turn away from him, God would uphold that covenant and say, I will remember my covenant. And when they turned back to him, he restored them to right position with him. See the same thing in 1 Samuel uh, with David in his covenant with him and his children. So the other thing to remember is that there, there's an uh, important connection between what God sees in images. And that's why in the commandments in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, he used that to define what this covenant relationship would look like and how we could follow that covenant relationship with him. And the second commandment he gave us was basically do not make any idols. But what was the specific wording he used in that? He said, do not make any graven 
image. So he recognized that when you make a graven image, you are trying to take something and make it look, in some essence, a God, and put it in between me and you. And you are starting to look at that instead of looking at me. It's the same idea that God used when he was talking to uh, Samuel when the people were crying out for a king. And Samuel was like, no, this is not a good thing. But God said, don't worry about it. I will redeem this. He didn't use that exact wording, but that was what he told them is let them have a king. And when they look at their human king, they will realize that he is inadequate in comparison to me. Isaiah 44, if you ever get a chance to read Isaiah 44, it's a great picture of why uh, idols are a bad thing. Really, it outlines the idea that, um, that when you look at idols, God created things to be a certain way, and when you look at idols, you're really turning the same thing in, in, in that passage he uses, a block of wood. He says you cook with a block of wood, you make a bowl with a block of wood, and then you bow down to a block of wood. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Why would you cook with something and then bow down to it and say it's your God? Um, it's, a, it's a great picture. If you ever get a chance to read that and kind of put yourself in Isaiah's shoes, you'll see that. So <clears throat> next slide. So this is the slide I meant to show you earlier. So when we're talking about the, the Trinity, I kind of um, borrowed this and, and tweaked it from what I heard from Greg a while back. The idea is that when you have Christ, um, the picture that Paul is building here is that Christ is God, that he is uh, the deity. He is the one true God. And that in some essence, when you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are encompassed within the Godhead. They are one. They are complete and one. Next slide. And in some essence, the Godhead is encapsulated within three individual beings. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit, and they are all individual. They are very specific. But if you were to imagine that being either a balloon or a, a rock or a, a round rock, and you were to take away Christ, what would happen to God? That God would go away. It would cease to exist. It could not stay inside of that. If you took away Father and it were a, a balloon, for instance, it'd float away and you wouldn't have the one true God. So there are, there are errors out there. There are fallacies that are being told even in the world today where people are saying, well, there's only one God. There's God the Father. And Jesus was just kind of this, this other God or Jesus was just kind of his son. He wasn't a true God. That the Holy Spirit isn't really God. And we combat that as we look in the Word. We see that all of them are encompassed and encapsulated in one, but yet at the same time they are distinct. And God is encapsulated within the triune nature of the three. <clears throat> so what, why are we all here then? What is, what is the application you can take away from this? Next slide. <clears throat> so if you are a Christian, Christ has reconciled you by his body by his physical body. We see that in the last few verses of the, our passage today. In Hebrews 29, it also, or excuse me, Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 10, we also see it where it says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We'll get back to the last piece of that as we begin to talk about uh, our last point uh, of application today. But Christ, if you are a Christian, the, the great news that you have is Christ has reconciled you to himself. Christ's blood has covered not only your past sins, but the future sins that you will commit in the future because you, you are still battling sin. You are still in the process of sanctification. It's not something that is complete the day you give your life to Christ. It is an ongoing work so that, like we said before, every day that image you see in the mirror is something that looks more and more like Christ. Next slide. If, um, if you are a Christian, you also can be satisfied and take joy and find hope in the fact that you will remain established and firm in your faith. Galatians 2.20 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. If you did not earn your salvation yourself, then you cannot lose your salvation by your bad works. If Christ is the one that gave you salvation, he is then going to sustain you through that work because his works are perfect and effective and they will never fail. So if Christ is the one that's saving you, then you have all the hope that you will be sustained throughout eternity. If it is based on something you do, then you have all the fear that you are going to lose it someday. So the joy of being a Christian in the faith that we have is that Christ has promised that he is the one that saves us. He is the one that provides the work. It is by his blood and not by anything we do. Because if it was something by we do, knowing myself, it would fail over and over and over again. <clears throat> Finally, last slide. The commission that Paul had that he was given by God and the commission that Christ gave to his disciples and then sent out as apostles is the same commission you have. Matthew 18, uh, excuse me, 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We went over that a second ago. And so in verse 19 he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17 says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is Paul talking. That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 
So the cool thing is, is that sometimes as believers, we think, well, it's God's job to go make disciples. That's God's job. He's going to make disciples. We're going to read his word. Disciples are going to be made somehow magically, and then they're going to go and bring other people to Christ. We kind of mix up this idea that our job as Christians is to win converts, to get people to the decision point, and then our job is done. Paul understood something different. Paul said that it is my job, just like it was Christ's job, to make disciples. And he did that by inviting people into relationship with himself. And then he said, you go and make disciples and tell them to follow you just like I showed you to follow me. If Christ did things a certain way, as in if he made disciples in a certain way, that means that if he commissioned us to go make disciples, we should do it in the same way he did. All right, that doesn't mean we're going to go turn water into wine and you know, multiply fish and bread and stuff like that, but there are certain things Christ used in order to make disciples. Namely, he invited people into relationship with himself, and then he taught them lessons. He imitated what he saw from his father. He showed them how to do it, and then he sent them out to do it, and we should do the same. Anytime there's a new believer in our midst, we should invite them into relationship with us. We should teach them what it means to follow God. We should replicate that in our lives, and then we should eventually send them out to do the same thing. Notice he said he sent Timothy. He said, I'm not going to come to you myself. Timothy, if you watch Timothy, you will be able to see me because Timothy replicates my life. And if you replicate Timothy, you will replicate my life. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21, this is the last uh, verse we'll go through today. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, If you are a Christian here today, the promise here that we see through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Paul is that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that when we look at Christ, we see God because of his perfect nature, his life, his work, his death on the cross, but then also when we accept him into our lives to replace the old nature that is within us, to begin working on that and change us to be more like him. As we look in that mirror, we don't have to see our imperfections. We don't have to see our flaws. We know we're all flawed, every single one of us that's here. But as we are continuing in the process of sanctification with Christ, we can see that as we look in that mirror, we begin to see Christ more and more, every day, and we can thank God that it is him who is working that through us, and it will be perfect because it is Christ who is working that through us and not ourselves. Bow with me. Lord God, what an amazing word you've given us today, that you are the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And when we look at Christ in the word, we see everything that was hidden from us beforehand. 
we see you, God. We see your essence. We see your nature, and it is all good. And because of his work on the cross, we have great hope and great joy. So God, as we go from this place today, help us to look for opportunities to fulfill that commission that you've called us to. The same commission that Peter had and all the other disciples, the same commission that you gave to Paul when you changed his life and sent him on a new course. It's the same commission that we have. And God, we, we are humbled that you've called us to be your servants, to work that commission out for you. And God, we know that we can't do it in our own strength, and so we ask you that you would be with us and help us in our failures, in our weaknesses. And God, we are so excited that you are continuing that work in us day after day after day.